Primetime with Sean Mooney is brought to you by Blue Chew. Guys, coming up, I'm going to let you in on the way to increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. That's BlueChew.com. Man up. However, standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she was falling asleep. So I nudged her, she didn't respond. I was sitting out in my front yard, and they told me that uh, she didn't make it. If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> who else could it be? You know, I think it would take probably $100,000 at least to bring us in for the Hall of Fame. Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You can't You can't even show them on TV because they're so busy humping each other that you can't <laughs> even show them on TV. Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope that 2019 so far has started off well for you. Uh, I also hope uh, that you enjoyed our year-end best of PTSM 2018. Wow, what a podcast that turned out to be. Uh, lots of great stuff in that uh, three hours plus. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to think that, I mean, it was over three hours and you would not believe how tough it was for us to decide what to put in there because there was so much great material uh, during 2018 that, uh, you know, try and comb through it. You know, first of all, just decide just to decide who you wanted to include in it. I mean, think about it. We had 52 guests pretty much in the in the year. Uh, and then you try and uh, pick out different bites, you know, the best sections of those podcasts. It took a while. So. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I'll tell you what, you know, if you have friends that, uh, you know, are always looking to check out a new podcast and you want to recommend Primetime with Sean Mooney, say, you know what, check out the year-end special, that year-end podcast, because it's going to give you a real uh, good idea uh, about, uh, you know, what it's all uh, involved in and, and what kind of guests we have on there and how we, you know, go back and forth, forth with these conversations. So if you've got friends out there and, and, you know, we need you to help. This is all word of mouth, basically. That's how this all works. It's, uh, you know, through social media and you guys telling other people, hey, you got to check out PTSM. You're going to love it. So uh, that's a great episode to recommend to them uh, to uh, check out and then bring them on board and they can become part of Moon Nation. So uh, I really hope that you guys liked it. We really had a good time putting it together. So, but, you know, we've got so much going on in this new year. We've got, you know, we, that's all behind us now. I mean, uh, we, we've got to start looking ahead 2019. And, uh, you know, we didn't make any resolutions. We don't do that around here. We don't no New Year's resolutions. We just decided that we're just going to get better and better and better and just add new things and try uh, new things out on our listeners because it's all about you. We're just trying to, we're here to entertain you, uh, you know. So uh, we've been uh, coming up uh, with new lists for guests. So we've been coming up with new ideas. We're going to do themed shows this year uh, with uh, with guests, of course. And then uh, we've got ideas for these watch-alongs that are going to be coming your way, uh, bringing in uh, hopefully some superstars to do those with us. And, uh, you know, to do all that, I mean, to be on the real inside, though, 
you got to join us on Patreon. And, uh, you know, the, it's it went great. We've got a great kickoff here, but we want to keep it going because we want to keep sharing all of this bonus material. I mean, so far, we've put up, uh, you know, a Q&A that I did uh, with Casey, our, our producer, and uh, there's some really uh, great stuff in there because there are questions you know, I'd, I'd never even been asked before. So there's some great stuff in there that uh, nobody has ever really heard me talk about. And then we put up the... Uh, uh, episode that has never seen the light of day. And, you know, and I have to be honest with you, I wasn't, I would, I really didn't want to put it out there because it was just, I'm talking about the episode with Tony Atlas. It was just so out there and he is so out there and it was just, it was outrageous. I was like, what, what am I going to do with this? But, uh, you know, uh, Casey and Evan, you know, the, uh, part of the team here are like, no, no, we gotta, we gotta let them decide. Let them decide, you know, then I said, well, should I put up a disclaimer at the front, you know, like they do when they have, uh, you know, a, a programming that might be controversial and say, you know, the the following content uh, has nothing to uh, do with the beliefs of the <laughs> of the host of this podcast. But, uh, you know, if you want to hear it, it's there. It's on Patreon. And uh, we make it real easy for you. All you have to do to uh, become a member is go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney. That's patreon.com slash primetimemooney to sign up. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've kept it simple. Uh, we, we always do. I have to do it. You know, I have to keep it simple like my brain. And uh, we just have two tiers. That's it. Just two tiers. You can become, you can be a prime timer or you can become a Mooney. That's it. It's pretty simple. And uh, if you become a prime timer, you're going to get uh, an autographed photo, a vintage photo from me. And uh, you're going to get a social media shout out. And I should say, if you've already received a picture from me because we've uh, sent out uh, a lot of them to our listeners, don't worry about that. I've got other things to send you as well. So when you sign up, uh, just uh, make sure you get a note to us and say, well, I already have a, a, a vintage photo of Sean that he signed for me. So can I get another photo or something like that? Just let us know that you have one and we'll send you something else. And then uh, you're going to get a social media shout out as we welcome you aboard. And then, you know, uh, you're going to give us your birthday. So when it's your birthday on the podcast, I am going to give you a birthday shout out. And this is all part of just being a prime timer. And then, of course, you're going to get all of the PTSM episodes early before anybody else does, and you're going to get them ad-free. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, you get it before anybody else. You can start you know, putting little uh, notes out there, little shouts out there to people say, man, you got to check this out because you're going to hear it first because you're a member of Patreon uh, with Primetime Mooney, okay? And you're a, uh, you're a prime timer, okay? So... Uh, we're going to have uh, live Q&A sessions. If you've joined us before on uh, on the uh, Crowdcast episodes, you get to all those free now. You don't have to pay for those when you come on uh, for those Q&A sessions that we're going to have. And then, of course, we'll keep adding bonus shows. I mentioned the Tony Atlas one, um, the one that was supposed to be buried in the, in the archives in a dark, deep dungeon somewhere. Nope. They took it out. And they put it on Patreon. So it's there. And you can listen to it. Okay? Well, uh, that's just for being a prime timer. Now, let's say that uh, you're all in. You're really all in. And you uh, want to become a Mooney. Well, you are going to be glad you did. Because not only are you going to get the phone call from me and uh, the autographed picture, uh, the 8x10 photo, and the social media uh, shout-out that we're going to you know, welcome you in, the birthday shout-out, 
uh, getting the uh, uh, Prime Time with Sean Mooney episodes early and ad-free and the live Q&A sessions. The bonus shows come with that as well. But listen to this. You stay with us for 12 months, you get a free, absolutely free T-shirt. We will send it to you. You pick it out. You tell us what you want and give us your size. And then we will send you that T-shirt from the PTSM collection. All right. And uh, we're going to have a monthly uh, live watch alongs where we're going to have, you know, uh, we'll pick something out that we want to watch, you know, like we did with uh, Saturday night's main event. Maybe we'll do something else. Maybe we'll do watch an episode of an old episode of primetime or we'll take something from uh, Coliseum home video and you guys come on with me and we'll watch it. And, uh, you know, we'll just uh, go do some back and forth on that. And uh, we're also working on a a real special live watch along event. See, this is where uh, you're going to be able to, um, you know, uh, come on with us when I do these and we do a watch along. Let's say, for example, a big match that a superstar was involved in. We have that superstar with us. We watch the match. And then when it's all over, uh, but even through it, you're going to asking the Q&A. But uh, because you are a Mooney, you get to come on the screen with that superstar and you know, not just ask questions. You can interact with that person. So that's that's awesome. I can't wait till we uh, get the first one up, and and we're getting close to getting this all together. And you will have, uh, as I mentioned, the reserve spot to come on the broadcast, be seen on the screen with that superstar. Okay, and that's just uh, for being a Mooney. All you get, all of that. Uh, all you have to do once again is go to Patreon.com/slash/PrimetimeMooney. And I mentioned uh, the the T-shirt. That if you're with us for 12 months, you get that for free. Uh, if you'd like to get uh, a T-shirt, uh, you can go to MooneyTees.com. We've got a great collection there, uh, and we've got a brand new one up. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, you can see it. Uh, we've posted it on a couple of things. It's the it was it was inspired by the episode uh, of Moonies, which was uh, uh, one of the episodes on the Edge and Christian show on the WWE Network. So if you've seen that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's a T-shirt uh, that has Moonies on it and uh, a replica of those boxers that I wore during the show. So that's just one of the new additions, and we've got a couple of others coming up. But uh, if you want to purchase a T-shirt. Go to MooneyTees.com. Now, before we welcome our tremendous guest, and believe me, you're going to love this one, uh, I want to give a shout-out to my good friends with the Rock and Wrestling Podcast. Guys, you know, uh, this this is a podcast that has it all. And uh, I, I want you to, you know, add this to your list. Check it out. Uh, it's called the Rock and Wrestling Podcast, hosted by Rick Newman. And uh, what's awesome about this is it features guests every week from uh, independent wrestling uh, they got, you know, former wrestling stars are there and they mix in because the rock and wrestling, get it? They uh, have people come on from the uh, rock and roll world and the heavy metal world. So they've got, got it all in this. And it's it's uh, it's a great uh, ride to uh, check this podcast out. Now, some of the guests on the show they've had uh, so far, they Dizzy Reed from Guns N' Roses. They've had Flip Gordon, of course, Conrad Thompson, uh, Jim Florentine. Tony Schiavone has made an appearance there. So, uh, and I've, I've gone on and, and, and uh, been a guest on the program. Uh, the podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and Buzzsprout. And they have new episodes every Wednesday, just like us. And you can follow, follow them on social media and on Twitter at uh, Nick's 
RNW podcast. That's Nick's RNW Rock and Wrestling. Get it? Podcast on Instagram, Rock and Wrestling Podcast. And Facebook, Nick's Rock and Wrestling Podcast. All righty. I think we have uh, done all the business. Now let's get to the conversation. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that we've got great guests coming up. This is certainly no exception. Uh, another fantastic superstar in the WWE, who is what they would call a, um, hmm, let's see, a, a stiff competitor. Uh, he delivered it in the ring. And there are so many sides to this guy uh, outside of the ring. This week we have John Bradshaw Layfield. Yep, JBL. Let's get to it. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, my guest this week here on Prime Time with Sean Mooney has worn many hats during his career, and not all of them in the world of professional wrestling. Along the way, he's also become an expert in the world of finance, and since uh, he's stepped away from his full-time duties with the WWE, he has devoted a lot of his time to helping impoverished kids find a way to a better life. Welcome John Layfield, or better known to wrestling fans as John Bradshaw Layfield, or JBL. John, welcome to Prime Time. Uh, it's great being here, Sean. I've always been a fan of what you do, and uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Well, uh, I'm glad that we finally caught up with each other. We met really for the first time uh, officially at a WrestleMania in New Orleans, uh, and where we both appeared at uh, some, uh, something to wrestle with live show with Bruce Pritchard and, and Conrad Thompson. And I have to tell you, really, I, I knew you, you had a comedic side to you, but I'm not kidding. You were so damn funny. I mean, you could also, I think, add to your uh, many... Uh, accomplishments comedian uh i mean that was just amazing that 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 show and i know it's not scripted but uh, it looked like you had a, you had a lot of fun doing it those shows are so much fun i, I when bruce started doing all the shows i didn't understand the appeal because i hadn't seen one and then you see mm -hmm. them live you're like, these shows are so much fun but as far as the comedic, it's just low expectations. You know, people don't expect much from me. So yeah, I've been, uh, I've made a whole career on exceeding low expectations. Oh God. When you, you know, you came out and folks, uh, you know, these live shows, they do it. It's basically they have a table and they come out and sit there and then you never know who's going to show up, but you kept doing the, you know, the run-ons and with do drugs and, 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 you know, all tongue in cheek, but God, it was, and I was out in the crowd, uh, helping field questions, but man, I'm telling you, I had a ball. I thought it was fantastic. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad we, we finally had a chance to meet in person. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, I went to a uh, rugby event. Very, it was very similar to that. Here's some old legends. And I, I didn't know these guys very well because I didn't go up watching rugby. And they started telling old stories like Bruce does and all his guests do. And was, I just had the best time. And I realized why people enjoy going to these live events like that. It's, just, it's a wonderful atmosphere and a lot of fun. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that that is kind of the secret to all this is they've kind of uh, – you know, not not just only pulled back the curtain. They've invited people to come there with them, and you know, people just love hearing, you know, kind of this uh, behind the scenes, uh, you know, what went on in all those years, and and it, those they they really are a blast. But uh, you mentioned rugby, and I want I'll get to that. But um, I, I first want to get to what you've been doing lately, and um, you know, you're doing a lot of work on, on, as a financial contributor and host on Fox News Channel and Fox Business News. Uh, how did that all come about? I was uh, uh, the mother of uh, inventions. The mother is the uh, mother of necessity, right? You know, so I, uh, I I played a little pro football. Didn't make much money. I'd like to tell you that I had a problem with 
uh, drugs and hookers and uh, some great stories, but I don't have any of those. I don't have any of those stories. I just I just spent all my money, but I didn't make much money. So it wasn't like I blew millions of dollars. I blew tens of dollars, and I didn't have any money when I got done. When I got finally got cut uh, for my third year because of uh, injuries, either injuries or lack of talent. I'm not sure which one. I like to think it's injuries. And uh, I, I saw myself, man, I've wasted three years uh, of making money, and I don't have anything. I literally had $27, and I thought, if I ever make money again, I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And I literally just started reading every financial book there was, and I thought I could write a better book than this. And I wrote a financial book. And then when the wind picked up uh, energy, uh, windmills, all the renewable energy picked up in West Texas, where I grew up, mm -hmm. I had a wind farm planned. I'd, I'd gotten the turbines bought and the land acquired, and then the renewable energy credit imploded, and it killed the margin, so the deal never worked. But the investment bank I was working for, uh, or working with, had asked me, he said, we really like what you did. Would you come to work for us? So I went to work on Wall Street for about three or four years uh, with the, with an investment bank, got certified, six, Series uh, 63, Series 7, all that stuff. And during that time, I started working for Fox also because I'd written that book. And it was kind of unusual to have a professional wrestler uh, in finance. So it was a bit of an oddity at first. And then they kind of, uh, I, I guess, liked me. And so I've been there ever since with uh, Fox Business. Yeah, you, you kind of you skip uh, way ahead there. Was when you really started to become serious about this, and was it you know well into your wrestling career when you know, or or is this something that you know just kind of picked up steam towards the end of it? No, I got really lucky. I started investing uh, when I first got with WWE. It was when I first really had money to invest, and I got lucky with the '97 Asian crisis. So I invested. I think Oracle and Applied Materials were the first stocks I bought, and I bought them at just the perfect time, not because of anything I saw I just was lucky uh, they would really dipped during that Asian crisis in the late 90s and I was making quite a bit of money and I thought Ben this is <laughs> this is what I need to do with my money so I, it just kind of snowballed from there and ever since then I've been a, a full-time investor at least with my money yeah and you know you mentioned that it was probably an oddity at first you know somebody said you know this guy's a professional wrestler and you ought to take a look at him because he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to finance but uh, at what point did they say, no, it's not even the fact that he was a professional wrestler. This guy is good and knows what he's talking about, and we need to have him on our, our network. I don't know, and I don't know if it still has gotten to that point yet. <laughs> so uh, I think after some time, you know, I was pretty good at picking stocks, and, and still am pretty good. You know, it's in, in a bull market, anybody can pick stocks, but mm. that was the blessing I had in the late 90s and early 2000s. And... Uh, so I, I think just after some time of doing it, that they kind of just accepted me as one of them. You know, I, and I, but I think it really, uh, you know, came to light to me when recently, uh, you know, I just saw, you know, how the world of professional wrestling uh, is really a, a part of uh, the entertainment world and even our government. When, uh, you know, recently you interviewed Linda McMahon on the Fox B uh, Business News Channel. And, uh, of course, everyone knows Linda, Linda is now a member of the Trump administration. Uh, she's the uh, head of the Small Business Administration. And you interviewed her about uh, her involvement in dispersing billions of dollars uh, to these uh, businesses, these small businesses that have uh, been ravaged, were ravaged by uh, Hurricane Harvey. Uh, during that interview, at, at any point, did you say, you know, this has really come full circle or was it another day at the office? 
No, it wasn't another day in the office. You know, I have a good rapport with Linda, having worked for her for, uh, you know, especially in the, the mid-'90s when I first came in there. She was still full-time uh, CEO, president, whatever her official title yeah. was. And But that to me, that was a little, was a little uh, you know, it, it made me a little bit nervous. And it was one of the yeah. first interviews I've been nervous for in a long time. Yeah. And not because it was just a small business administration head, but because it was Linda. So people are, a lot more people are going to look at that. A lot more eyeballs are going to look at that. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure, and I did a good job of setting the table for Linda. I knew she'd be awesome, but I wanted to make sure and do my part. And I, so there was a lot of extra preparation. And, and at one point in the interview, I was just kind of, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, while they're talking and while still yeah. listening. You know how it is. And it was, yeah. it was kind of a little bit nervous, you know, because I wanted to do such a good job for Linda. And for the people that would be watching that are also wrestling fans, you know, some rooting for you, you know, a few probably rooting against you, but uh, you, you wanted to do a good job for the business. Yeah, and and uh, did the significance of that uh, hit you? I mean, you kind of touched on it there, but the fact that, you know, here you've got, uh, you know, someone who spent many years in the ring with the WWE, That's that was the uh, reason that people know your name. And then you've got Linda McMahon, who's, of course, married to Vince McMahon, and here you are. You're just talking business. There's no, there was no nothing else besides, uh, you know, the the subject at hand. Yeah, absolutely. It does hit you. You know, it hits you when he interviews some of these people. You know, I get to interview some some wonderful people. I've interviewed, yeah. uh, man, you name it, some some really cool people from Mike Novogratz, billionaire Steve Forbes, uh, Carl Rove, uh, a lot of people that have, uh, you know, billionaires and people in politics, and. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, it's the old, and you do a great job of this, the old Johnny Carson model, as as, uh, exec producer from WWE, Kevin Dunn always says, you know, it's not about you, it's about them. And if you make Mm -hmm. them look good, the interview looks good. And so that, to me, is the main focus of of how I go about this. I want them to have a good time. I want them to feel comfortable. And it does hit you sometimes. You know, I'm interviewing a really cool person here, and and Mm -hmm. that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's fun to watch it. I know that uh, you know more and more people at first kind of going, "That's JBL, and he's on Fox News." What? <laughs> but then they go, "Yeah, it's him." And, and and you know, it really has been an incredible ride for you, John. And and um, I, I want to take you back because people love to hear about the path that uh, my guests travel. And um, I, you were born in Texas, so you wearing a cowboy hat isn't something that was just a gimmick. But you know. Tell me a little bit about growing up there, and and uh, you were quite an athlete. So uh, I'd love to hear about the you know your path to football, and then how it went on from there. Sure. Look, I grew up a huge wrestling fan. My grandfather, uh, who was a minister and retired when I was a young kid in Sweetwater, Texas, lived right near us. He was a big wrestling fan, so we used to watch wrestling together. The Von Erichs uh, before the boys were there. The Fritz and uh, uh, Brody would come around, and even at that time. It looked just getting started and I always wanted to be a wrestler and football was so big though in Sweetwater that I got hooked up in the football excitement and I thought you know I really want to be a pro, pro football player and I was fortunate to achieve some honors and get the chance to play for a while then I got hurt and couldn't play any longer and it wasn't like it was a last ditch effort like I, I can't do anything else I might as well go into wrestling well, this is a great chance to go into wrestling. I was playing in the World Football League. In fact, Jason Garrett, uh, the coach of the Cowboys, was our was our quarterback. <laughs> and I met a guy who had wrestled in Japan. Never heard from him since. Uh, but I asked him, I said, how did you get into wrestling? He said, Brad Rangans in Minnesota. And so I moved up to Minnesota. Brad trained uh, Vader, trained Brock Lesnar. At the time, was recognized as the, 
the best trainer there was. Moved up there and trained for about four and a half months in his uh, basement and then started wrestling. Started wrestling in Texas and got to wrestle against uh, a lot of my childhood idols, the, the Von Erics, the Freebirds. Tag team with Dick Murdoch, tag team with Bob Orton, Randy's dad. You know, it's funny because yeah. I've wrestled Randy a lot, but Randy always, uh, you know, just kind of considers me, even though I'm not that much older. I am older, uh, kind of one of his dad's friends, you yeah. know, because I, I, I <laughs> tag team with uh, Bob in Japan. Yeah. But it was just a wonderful experience. You know, I lived in Europe for a couple years, wrestling for Otto Vance and Peter William, along with Tony St. Clair and Fitz Finley, some, some incredible talent over there. And it's just been a wonderful ride. Finally made it to WWE in, in 95, and I never dreamed I would be there more than two or three years. Those bad guys just didn't stay there very long. Mm-hmm. I really thought I'd go there for a couple of years, hopefully make a name for myself and go to Japan, and finish in Japan like Stan did. And, you know, I'm here, I'm still at WWE in some capacity 20-something years later. I never dreamed that would happen. That that really is amazing uh, to have a run like that, and and I always it, it it's incredible to think, and I've heard it many times from from uh, some of the most successful superstars in the WWE say, yeah, when I got there, I was hoping if I if I could you know make a couple of years out of it, uh, that would be fantastic, and then you know they're talking decades later, so it, to do that is is just an amazing accomplishment. Um, getting back though to, to Texas and growing up there, uh, you know a lot of people don't know just how rich that uh, professional wrestling was in those areas. You mentioned the Von Erics, but there was also other outfits there. Um, you know, growing up, uh, what were you watching? I mean, did, was that, was it the local stuff or, you know, we had, at that point in time, cable television was around and, and uh, we were starting to see other, you know, uh, WWF was on and these uh, other, you know, WCW in its form then. Did you, did you watch all that? Is it, that's what got you in? What was it that you really followed? Yeah, we had very little WWF at the time, very little. And WTBS was just starting up. So we, we, we got it kind of later when I was growing up, but not at the beginning. I, I got the TV. I was at the conflux between uh, the Von Erich television and the Funk television out of the Amarillo. Amarillo. Yeah. So I was in a place kind of in West Texas that both TVs kind of crossed over. So that's what I grew up watching. I, I never got to see Paul Bosch or, or Blanchard's down, Paul Bosch down in Houston or yeah. Blanchard down in San Antonio. I got to watch a lot of the funks uh, out of Amarillo and a lot of the Von Erics out of Texas. And I don't, unless you grew up in Texas, I don't think people know how hot the Sportatorium was. That place was yeah. on fire. I remember I was tagging with, I think, Carrie and Kevin, and the Freebirds had reunited for a little bit. They walked down that aisle, and that place, I, I've still to this day never heard an explosion like that. It, it's really? just, it was just an amazing thing, and I got to be a part of that at the very end of their run, at the very start of my career, and it was the time of my life. It was an incredible honor to be out there with those guys. You know, and uh, I've really uh, done a lot of reading now about uh, you know, the territories because I'm just fascinated how that all came together back then, and you know, uh, most people think that you know, it was it was Vince that uh, you know in the the mid '80s, late '80s, who really started to take you know these territories down. But there's so much history behind it. There was there was a lot of that going on with these other promoters who were you know stretching out and trying to develop territories in other parts of the country, regardless of how you know the NWA at the time that that alliance of of territories. But uh, in Texas, you know, you talk about uh, like families like the Von Erics. 
I mean, they were royalty down there. And uh, those days are definitely gone. But uh, it must have been really uh, something to witness, like how local communities there uh, followed this uh, type of wrestling back then. It was unbelievable. I got yeah. the honor of traveling some with Kerry uh, Von Erich. Yeah. He yeah. was as close to a rock star as I've ever yeah. seen. He had a presence when he walked in a room. It was uh, it was like Elvis walking in the room. He had the most humble thing. He'd he'd shake hands with people and say, "Hi, I'm I'm Kerry Von Erich." Yeah. Of course, yeah. everybody knew who the freak he was. You know, it yeah. was, they would just melt. Yeah. He had a charisma that was unbelievable. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. Maybe Shawn Michaels in the ring was like it. Yeah. But there was nothing like Kerry Von Erich, and they were just God in Texas. Uh, they could do anything, and I, and I mean anything. And they, and they did. Uh, but it was, man, it was an incredible time. Fritz made a uh, mistake. You know, they wanted to take the Von Erichs national, and Fritz said no. His boys wanted to do it. He didn't. Mm. And by the time he decided for his own survival to take it national, uh, Vince and uh, Crockett had already gotten too far ahead of him. Uh, so it was just a mistake. These guys were late to the table. The cable television, when it became national, that was going to kill the territories no matter what. If it hadn't been Vince, it would have been Crockett or it would have been somebody else. Right. Ganya made the same mistake. Ganya could have done it as well and was just late to the table. So somebody was going to take over the, the nation. It just happened to be that Vince was the one that was best at, at what he was doing. Well, hold up a second there, JBL. we got to take a little break here. Uh, you were a man among men in the WWE. Uh, but, you know, some of us uh, maybe not always so virile. And, uh, guys, you know, remember the days when you were always ready to go? You know, uh, some of us getting up there. Well, guess what? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Yes, it can be back. Because let's be honest here. It may be a constant problem, it may be an occasional problem, but no matter what, uh, come on, at some point, we men have had trouble performing when we really needed to. Well, with Blue Chew, you can now increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed whenever you need to. Yes, BlueChew.com, that's blue, like the color blue. BlueChew.com brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And you can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever that opportunity arises. And guys, they make it very easy. I mean, I did it. All you have to do is go to bluechew.com and then you answer a few questions and they take it from there. That's it. Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no in-person doctor's visits. No waiting in a pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're also made in the USA, and since BlueChew.com prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. That's right. So, what are you waiting for? Take it from me. If you want to improve your performance and get that extra confidence in bed, get BlueChew right now. And now could not be a better time, guys, because your first order is going to be absolutely free. As you listen to this podcast, we have a very special deal for you. Visit BlueChew.com right now, and you will get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code PRIMETIME, P-R-I-M-E-T-I-M-E, and then all you have to do is just pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's BlueChew.com, promo code PRIMETIME, to try it free, right? Free. So, come on, guys, man up. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. That's BlueChew.com. Come on. 
man up. Yeah, and from you know uh, your business knowledge, uh, you've got to be fascinated by how that all came together because it really wasn't. Uh, I mean, it's certainly the product was part of it, but it was business acumen. It was uh, you know who was willing to risk more, who was going to get to these areas first, and uh, like you said, if it wasn't Vince, it would have been somebody else. But Vince outmaneuvered him. Yeah, and you know people bash Vince. I was in the territories back then when they were all bashing Vince. It was just the bad guy from New York. They, they hated him because he was taking over, but he would go to these territories and he would say, I'm going to buy you out or I'm going to crush you. He would give them an option of joining him or, or fighting him. And most just told him where to go. They're the old school mentality. It was the boys running the business, which is the worst thing in the world. You want, you know, the, the, the boys are, are just as smart as everybody else, but you want boys that are businessmen, not boys that are workers just running the business and, you know, kind of having a good time doing it, which was a lot of the case in a lot of the territories. And Vince just had an idea, you know, when Crockett ran uh, that first Thanksgiving show, uh, Vince came along and ran a pay-per-view at the same time. He he thought he could just do two or three pay-per-views a year. He never dreamed there'd be 12 to 20 yeah, uh, yeah. For, for one federation. And he went in to, uh, to pay-per-views and said, listen, we're going to run WrestleMania next year. It's going to be huge. And if you carry Crockett, you're not carrying us. And yeah. it's just business. You know, he was He's a, a predator. And he was happened to be better than Crockett, who was his best, who was his biggest competition. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to do a, a podcast on that uh, coming up because uh, I think there's just a lot of that story people don't really know, and uh, a lot of those guys they would have done the same thing. They were trying to do the same thing. Vince was just better at it. Of course they were. Yeah, they were all trying. To, most well, most of them were trying to do the same thing. Even Fritz later, who was dead set against it was trying to do the same thing. Ganya tried to do the same thing with uh, ESPN later, but they were late to the table. Crockett was the only one that was even close to competing with Vince, but Crockett just wasn't quite as good a businessman as Vince was. Crockett, you know, Vince saw the closed circuit, he saw the pay-per-view, and he was so successful with WrestleMania 1 and 2, he was able to leverage that to keep Crockett out, and that's when Crockett's downfall started happening. So, John, getting back to your career, and I, I think it really began in 92 with the uh, GWF. And uh, what were those early days like for you? Were you, were you, uh, you know, this guy floundering in the ring trying to catch up? Did you uh, catch on to it right away? Uh, what, was, what, what uh, were those early years like for you? It was an absolute baptism by fire. I, I went down to the Sportatorium, and uh, Lou Perez, no show to the event. I don't know what happened. If it's travel, he was sick or just got mad at payoffs. I have no idea. That was Al Perez's working cousin. I don't think they were ever related. Uh, and so I get down there, and they don't have a main event against Rod Price, who was the champion. And so they said, well, we've got this big <laughs> kid who played pro football. He was trained by Brad Ryan. This is the first match I've ever had. My and God. so they said, go, they told Rod to go take this kid out there as a surprise. We have nothing else. The place was sold out. And he said, take it as long as you can. And he said, if you can go 20, go 20. If you can't, go two. It doesn't matter. Just get <laughs> something out there. So I go out there with Rod. And Rod was a, a wonderful professional. Uh, and he carried me for about 20 minutes. It was end up being a good match because of Rod. And when I came back, uh, Kendo Nagasaki, Mr. Sakurada, had just started booking Japan when he had a split with Tenru. He didn't see the match. He just saw this big kid who played pro football in the main event. So he comes mm -hmm. to me and he says, would you like to come to Japan? 
Yeah, I've been in business now one day. <laughs> and he says, would you like to come to Japan? I said, yeah. I said, when are we going? It was like two or three weeks later. And I said, okay, great. Well, all these guys in Sportathorium have been trying to get to Japan. I got there after one day in the business just because of luck. So I go over there, and I'm tag-teaming with Bob Orton. And so Bob pulls me aside one day. He goes, you know, kid, you do some really good stuff, but some of the stuff you do makes no sense. He says, how long have you been working? And I said, uh, three weeks, sir. He said, no, 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 kid. He goes, not how long you've been in Japan. How long you been working? I said, sir, I've been working three weeks. He goes, the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I have no idea. So Bob would take me down to the dojo every morning and just show me some sugar holes and some hooks just to get me through the night. Because those guys, they didn't want to just challenge me right off because I was such a big young kid. They'd blow me up and just beat the living hell out of me uh, every single night, you know, after I blew up. And Bob taught me how to keep my pace. So after about five weeks, I finally started figuring it out and <laughs> figured out how to work a chair, which is pretty easy. You just swing it as hard as you can at a person with a lot of malice behind it. And uh, that's, that's kind of – I got baptized by fire. I was incredibly lucky. Same thing happened in Europe. Uh, the Larry Cameron, who uh, was an American wrestler, had passed away in the ring in Bremen. And allegedly there was some uh, – alleged, I have no idea what happened, some drug use or something that could have happened. None of the Americans came back for that Euro that European tour the next year. I think they were a little bit nervous of what happened and the fact a guy died in the ring. So Otto Vance hired an entire new crew. He's down to the last guy. I'd sent videos. I'd sent stuff to everybody. And at the last minute, uh, Jimmy Suzuki, the Japanese reporter, was in there. And he goes, oh, he goes, I know John Hawk. That was my name then. And he says, you do? And he says, yeah, he's a good boy. Otto goes, okay, I take him. And that's how I got hired because Jimmy happened to be in the office. So I've, I got, I've got a couple of uh, really – my two best jobs in my life just by luck. Wow. And, and uh, you know, I guess it is part luck. But, uh, you know, you, you talk about old school. That's, that's old school days. And um, earning your way, how tough was it? How tough were these guys on you? Uh, I would. I got. I got the living hell beat out of me. You know, I was this big, young, blonde kid who had played pro football. I didn't know what I was doing in the ring, and they knew it. And they, I, they took advantage of me from, from go to woe, man. They, they would blow me up. It's just old school, old man stuff. You know, they blow me up, and then just beat the living tar out of me, stretch me, bend me all around, make me look stupid. I mean, that was uh, that was how they did it back in those days, especially in Japan. You know, and it's just, you sink or swim at that point. You either figure out how to make it through or you quit and never go back. And I didn't want to quit. I didn't have another job. So it wasn't, wasn't an option quitting. And thanks to Bob Orton, uh, literally, he would take me in the dojo in the morning. He'd show me hooks and sugars and all kinds of things about how to get through matches and, and how not to blow up. And he would talk me through it on the apron and got me through it. I finally figured out the style and Ended up loving the style in Japan. It was I had a wonderful time working over there. Probably my favorite place to work. Really, and, and you know your your uh, rise was pretty quick. I mean, you start in '92. By '95, you're with the WWF. Uh, during those three years, I mean, did did it just happen quickly that one thing would lead to another, and you just kept getting uh, farther up that ladder? Yeah, I had no fallback plan. So it's not like a guy who's working part time and 
wrestling part time. I was wrestling full time. I didn't wasn't making much money. Dunk, Bobby Duncan and I were splitting a, an apartment uh, in the hood in, in Garland, Texas. It was a bad place. Uh, cost us nothing, and I, I didn't have a backup plan. So I was wrestling every night, literally seven nights a week. And I'd go to the gym and wrestle in the mornings. I just I wanted. To, I really wanted. I, I thought I could make it. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I was around some great people, and I got into some places, luckily, like Japan and Europe, and broke in in the right way. It was a you know, li- little bit of, well, maybe a lot of luck, but a lot of hard work, too. Yeah, and then, uh, so how did the, the, the path of the WWF, uh, WWE, uh, you know, come about when, uh, you know, when you got that opportunity to come up? I was uh, in Europe. We, had, we wrestled over there in the, uh, basically the carnival circuit, and I would, uh, you know, you have your trailer behind you. You'd wrestle around. You wouldn't have a bathroom in a trailer. You have to go into the building to use it. It was, you know, but it was a wonderful life, and you learned business. And while I was there, somebody told me that Bruce Pritchard wanted to talk to me. So, but way before cell phones, and I didn't have a phone in my caravan, so I went down and waited at a payphone. It was raining in <laughs> Hanover, Germany. I thought, this is crazy. Nobody's going to call me. And the dang phone rang, and it was Bruce. And Bruce said, we want to hire you. Uh, come in through on your way back, and we're going to have a tryout match and see if we like you. I said, well, I've gotten an offer from WCW. And I said, but I want to come to work for you guys. And he said, well, come work. Come see us first. We'll see how it goes. And if so, we'll hire you on the spot. And that's how it happened. Went through uh, back to the States, walked in the back, and Tony Gurria said, are you on the card today? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm supposed to have a tryout match. He's, and he threw me out. <laughs> so I thought, oh, what the, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I was so excited well. about this job, and I got thrown out of the back. And so uh, it was snowing like crazy, and I, I went back to the airport, and I couldn't get a flight out. Uh-huh. And because I thought, well, screw it, they don't, they don't want me. And so I stayed. And the next day they were in, I think, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and it was a snowstorm. There was only about 300 people there that day. And you remember, you'd put all the people behind the the hard camera where you'd see them so the arena looked full. Right. It was the day Goldust debuted. Uh, the ringmaster, I think, had just gotten there, Steve. And I had a match with Savio Vega. And the only reason I went was because I couldn't get a flight out. And yeah. after the match was over, Jerry Briscoe pulled me aside and said, we want to hire you. And I was still mad about him throwing me out the day before. And I said, well, I'm going to WCW this week. And he said, well, we don't want you to go. And I said, okay, you promised me a contract. I won't go. And that's how it happened. Wow. And, and so uh, did they push you right away? Uh, I know you had some you know, pretty uh, high – profile matches bob holly and uh you know a, a bunch of other ones but did it did it take a little while or, or did they push you right away hey yeah, they did I, you know and back then the, the that roster was so loaded i mean that was yeah, business yeah. was terrible but that was i think probably the most loaded roster in history i mean you can argue maybe the 80s but I, that, that roster had everybody it had the nwo before the nwo it had bret hart and the whole canadian contingent had undertaker and all of his guys I mean, had uh, Triple H, The Rock was coming in just a little bit later. Steve was there as a ringmaster. Uh, Kane was there as Isaac Yanko. I mean, that roster was loaded, uh, but they used me. I worked the opening match for about a year straight against, you know, Bob Holly most of the time. Mm-hmm. Also, Savio Vega and a bunch. But I got to be on almost every pay-per-view. Not in big matches. I got a few gimmick matches, a few strap matches here and there and different stuff. But, yeah, they used me. At that time, there was more of a slow build. You did, 
you really did you have a guy come in straight on top. You know, you had a guy like, I guess Papa Shango came in and uh, he'd been there a while. I guess Charles had, but you had a few guys that do. Most of them were like me. You just came in and, and you you paid your dues and kind of worked your way up, and they saw what happened. So yeah, they took. I thought they took really good care of me. I didn't have a ton of success as Justin Hogg Bradshaw, but uh, you know, wasn't a, it wasn't a failure either. I got to be on almost every pay per view and wrestle every house show uh, that year. Yeah, and in some ways that's probably worked uh, in your favor to to get there. And then you know, it's it's not an easy place to come in and work and then be successful because, like you said, that roster was just incredible. And it even it's hard enough at any point, but that time uh, the the lineup was just loaded. Maybe it was better that you were able to kind of ease your way in. And and you mentioned that the business wasn't great in '95. Uh, when did you start seeing? That tra- you know that transition to where the WWE was getting back on top again when we saw you know the Attitude Era and the Generation X and and the the coming of the Rock and uh, Stone Cold. Yeah, business was not great. It, it was actually terrible. We couldn't yeah. give away tickets. We almost yeah. ran the Sportatorium in Dallas because we couldn't uh, pay the rent at the Reunion Arena, uh, the, wow. the big arena. We had a thousand seats there in that huge arena, hmm. uh, but Vince just wouldn't. The image of running something other than the big arena was something Vince wouldn't do, which was a very smart business decision. But, man, I remember we were getting a $200 draw, and we'd owe the company 50 bucks back because we only got 150 bucks that night. It was uh, Business was terrible. And I thought, man, I've missed the entire boom because it was just after the huge boom of wrestling. And this was probably the worst downfall they'd had in, in a couple decades. Uh, I still remember seeing WrestleMania, I think it was 13, where Sean rappelled down on the pond and sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm not sure I belong here. <laughs> it was He and Bret Hart put on such a hell of a match. I wasn't ready for, for prime time at, at that, uh, not to steal your name. I wasn't ready for it at, at that time. <laughs> I stole and it. So it was good that it wasn't, and maybe it was good even that, that business wasn't that good, at least for me, yeah. uh, because I wasn't ready. Uh, but business overall, it just... Man, we meandered, and what happened was when you had first had Luger walk out on Nitro, Nitro started, and then Vince had to answer. That's when it started picking up in 96 and 97. And we, you know, we were losing badly, and we didn't know if we would stay in business, but that's when it started picking up, and it was so much fun during that time. I remember getting checks and not just taking them down the bank of the possum, not even looking at what they were. Hardly. It was just... You you worked for fun. I mean, it was a it was a great time. But but was it also when you mentioned you know how much fun it was that uh, it kind of seemed like they got to the point you know hey we don't know what else we can do here let's see what you guys can do I mean it it seemed you know when you you've uh, you know heard stories from from Dwayne and, and Steve and saying you know I just but both of them got to the point like. I just was just going to say either I just let go and be who I think I should be on this stage or I'm done. And it's, it, did it seem like kind of that whole atmosphere there that it was just like, let's just see if this works because I think it's a great idea. Yeah, guys would try anything, and, yeah. and Vince was willing to let them try anything because what we were, had done hadn't worked. Yeah. And WCW was throwing everything at us, and they were winning. And so Vince just let, gave guys carte blanche to go out there and try stuff. Some worked, some didn't, um, some failed miserably, and some, like Steve, there in Milwaukee when he gives out an Austin 316, you know, sets the business on fire. And what really happened was the Montreal screw job. You know, when Brett was leaving, um, mm-hmm. 
Vince McMahon, because of the, the whole way the thing played out, became the evil Mr. McMahon character on television. And that character, the, when Steve first faced Vince, that was the first time we had beat him right after uh, WrestleMania. You know, we brought in Tyson during that time. Mm-hmm. But if not for the, the luck of that, the fallout from that Montreal screwjob, I'm not sure if we, I think we would have won eventually, but we certainly wouldn't have won that quick. But it was all the rise of the evil Mr. McMahon that was forced on air because of that uh, incident with Brett that really helped us. Yeah, and also, I mean, that combination with uh, with him in, in Austin uh, just was, was magic. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like you said, that whole character was just ripe. I mean, it was just perfect. He didn't really have to do anything as far as gaining heat. But I think that uh, Austin played a big role in that, too. Yeah, sure he did. And that, that, that Milwaukee deal was just gold, yeah. man. That was Steve. Yeah. That was Steve yeah. being Steve. You know, he had got his lip busted open earlier in the night with a match with Mark Merrill. Wind got sewed up. So Steve missed watching the show. When he came back in, Michael Hayes stopped him and said, hey, man, just want to let you know, Jake Roberts just cut a very religious promo on you. Uh, just to put it in your head for a promo after the match. Mm-hmm. So that then all of a sudden that Austin 316 gets in his head. Yeah. That was total impromptu. That was just Steve being Steve. And Steve probably would have never been in that position. But, you know, you had the Madison Square Garden curtain call. And because of that, um, you had Sean and Hunter yeah. uh, were out of favor at that time. So Steve kind of got a chance there because of a little bit of, of luck from from that event. And, and what did you see happen with with The Rock when you know you, you as a, a performer as a, a professional wrestler you you probably had experienced times like that in your career where something isn't isn't working or they're trying to put you someplace and you know like he just said I'm I'm just can't I'm just going to go my own way uh, what did you see happen there with that transition with him you know he came in he's such a good looking guy and he was incredibly talented incredibly yeah. athletic and man it just didn't work they later did it with Kurt Angle on purpose so that it wouldn't work mm-hmm. uh which they kind of learned their lesson but I mean Rocky kind of had no chance it was uh work it was so badly received that the only chance he really had was to embrace it and then when he came out with that Rocky sucks t-shirt that was just gold i mean the guy just took off from that point yeah you know, but Ron, Ron Simmons had a lot to do with, uh, I think, with Rock's uh, success. You know, Ron was a great mentor to him in the nation. And a lot of the stuff that uh, Rock said, he, he got through banter in the back with Ron. And I think Ron had a lot to do with Rocky having so much success. Huh. And you mentioned Ron. And, uh, you know, folks, I think, uh, loved, loved uh, the Blackjacks. Uh, but I think that uh, no one will ever forget the uh, the Acolytes and uh uh, and you're teaming with him. What made that work so well with you guys? That was just me and Ron. It was my birthday yes. in, uh, I think it was uh, Baltimore, and Ron and I had been out, and we celebrated my birthday, and I run into Vince, and uh, Vince, the uh, next morning, they said, Vince wants to see you. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm in trouble. So I go in there, and uh, he goes, you look a little worse for wear. And I said, well, I had a birthday. He goes, I know, I bought you a shot. And uh, I said, I think I remember. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the dress down. And he says, I want to put that on television. I said, put what on television? Yeah. He goes, you and Ron sitting around drinking beer, BSing. He goes, I love that. That's great. That's good stuff. That's what guys do. He goes, that's some funny stuff. You guys got a great rapport. 
I said, do you want us to drink beer on television? And he goes, yes, that's what I want to do. Make it real. And <laughs> that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. So I go tell Ron. He goes, uh, he goes yeah, yeah, we, are we in trouble? Uh, you still got contacts in Japan? I said, Ron, we're not only going to not going to Japan. We're going to drink beer on television. And he said, what? I said, Vince loved it. He wants us just sitting in the back. He goes, we're not going to wrestle. I said, no. He goes, we're going to drink beer and play cards. I said, yeah, I smoke cigars. He goes, that's the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> so that's how the whole thing came about. Vince just saw us sitting around BS and having fun like we always do with, with, with Godfather and, and, and the boys. And he wanted to put that on television. It just came out of a friendship with me and Ron. Me and Ron were friends long before we ever tagged. We rode together for years. We've always been good friends. So was that all pretty much just you two? Because uh, a lot of people seem to think during that period of time, and I know that there were a bank of writers involved, but did they just know better? Than to- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you couldn't have some of those young writers uh, working with us. They didn't understand it. So yeah. you had guys like Bruce Pritchard who would come along and say, okay, here's what we want to, kind of what we want to do. You guys fill in the blanks. Or there was a guy, Tommy Blanche at the same time, same type of guy. He's just a good dude. And they come along and say, guys, here's what we need. Just fill in the blanks and, and get this done. And that was it. We, we had uh, pretty much carte blanche. The, the bar fight stuff was uh, just awesome. You know, we'd, we'd go set it up in a bar, and guys loved it, man. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Stiff, very stiff, but a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, you uh, throughout your career, it, it just seemed like maybe it was from your your days uh, working with Orton and the rest of the gang there. But uh, that uh, that seemed to be a big part of uh, what made that work, though. And that and that was kind of that hardcore period where it it was stiffer and 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 people ate it up. Yeah, and that's how I broke in. I broke in that way in Texas. Broke yeah. in certainly that way in Japan and in Europe. I mean, those were those were incredibly stiff territories yeah. and it was just a matter of the style then it was you know just a different style you know we were texas and japan was hardcore way before hardcore was hardcore you know ecw came along and they did a wonderful job but that stuff existed before it just wasn't on television it was down in texas in a regional territory and it was in japan uh in a territory that wasn't televised well, you know, though they talk about the uh, the way you work, and and I, I remember hearing the term when I was uh, back in the day, they would call it, you know working like butter, you know, where you barely you know, you know the you didn't touch the guy barely, but it, it, you made it look great in the ring. I mean, when you work like that, how does your body hold up? Though I mean, that's night after night after night that you're doing that. I think you're just young and and uh, enjoying what you're doing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure an old man can work that way. Oh, I don't. I think you know it's just a matter of you get beat up, and it's probably why I have so many injuries now. You know, Stan Anson has uh, four joints replaced out of his body. You know, it, it takes a massive toll on you. You're just young and you enjoy what you're doing. It's just a lot of fun. You, you know, you walk out there, you hear the crowd, you think, man, this is going to be great. You pick up chairs and beat each other half to death, and you know, it, it was it was a fun experience. As crazy as that sounds. But do you, did you ever worry to, I mean, now, I mean, uh, all those, those chair shots to the head, uh, do, did, do you ever, are you concerned with that? Do you ever have any issues with that now? Yeah, I figure pretty soon I'll be hunting Easter eggs I just hit. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I should be a poster child for CTE. I, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. When I first uh, retired, I had a short-term memory loss. 
Mm-hmm. And I started uh, reading about uh, neuroplasticity in the brain, about how the brain can regenerate re- itself. And I don't know if it can or not, but I do all kinds of stuff. I play chess. I do a mind game every day. I play chess, Sudoku, learn something different, a, a language, a few words in a different language, something to kind of always stress, stretch the brain. And my, my memory has come back completely. And right now uh, it appears uh, to be as normal as, uh, if I can be called normal, but as normal as I know I am. So right now I don't have any effects. Um, I have no idea what the future holds. Hopefully it's, uh, you know, they come along with some metal tech, medical technology or maybe I'm the anomaly that doesn't get it. Yeah, well, we can only hope. Um, do you see, though, today, we see uh, what a lot of these guys are doing in the independent ranks and even in the WWE where, you know, these stunts, I mean, I don't know else how else to describe them. I know they're not necessarily bumps of these guys are – you know, flying over the top rope onto cement floors, onto bodies and off roofs. And, uh, you know, uh, does it concern you about what they are doing today? It doesn't seem like there is as much storytelling as there are these, uh, you know, high spots. Yeah, it's just crash from Derby. And I think they're, they're letting the crowd dictate to them instead of them dictate to the crowd. I think that's the whole problem. You know, it's not, you got to be the leader out there. You can't let the crowd lead you because, then just good guys win every match. It's, it's not what you need for longevity in the business. And it, it, it bothers me also for their health. You know, we didn't yeah. know. You know, back then we didn't know concussions were bad. You'd get a concussion and come in and you'd be kind of wandering around and you're dizzy. Guys would laugh at you. And you'd laugh at yeah. yourself. Go, Man, I'm screwed up. Uh, you're seeing double. And we, now you realize how bad it is. Uh, and these guys know that. And for them to do, continue to do stuff like that, I think it's very reckless. I think it's I think it's stupid. I, I wish they wouldn't. Uh, that's why I'm glad that uh, WWE has cleaned up, you know, what they're doing with no head shots and no chair shots. Uh, they're they're making the business a lot safer. Didn't know it was unsafe. Uh, these guys today do, and they still do it. And I don't think that's very smart. I mean, don't think it's good for the business, and I certainly don't think it's good for them. Yeah, and, and you mentioned how it's kind of like crowds are dicta- dictating what they want to see out there, and they love this stuff. Uh, like you said, it's kind of like a car crash. But uh, what about storytelling? I mean, does it seem that, I mean, I remember, and I know you couldn't do it today because of the attention span, but, you know, you could do an arm bar while you're telling the story for two minutes. Uh, you, you, you can't do that now, and it, it just seems like that is a, that really is missing and I'm not saying uh, two-minute arm bars. I'm just saying about that that element in the ring where you've got these personalities where a look or what one little move uh, tells part of the story. Yeah, it is. I, mean, I used to look at the old pictures of Japanese magazines, and Stan Hansen always had this horribly gnarly face uh, in every picture. You know, you look at yeah. the guy's killing him. And you're looking at going, that's not a real hold. <laughs> Once you really look at it, and, yeah. but the the perception is that. I remember one time I was wrestling uh, Eddie Guerrero. And we were on last, and we had to follow The Undertaker. And Taker, you know, he's a dear friend of mine, but, you know, those guys back then, if you had, they went on before you, they tried to make sure and give you something you couldn't follow. And he had one of the best matches I've ever seen. Man, what are we going to do, Eddie? (laughs) They just did everything. So we get out there, and I had this idea. We're going to go in the crowd. We're going to go nuts. We're going to start fighting all over the building. And I got out there, and and Eddie said, put me in the headlock, I said, so I put him in a headlock. Right away, I called the spot. I said, tackle, drop down, double arm drag, we'll go outside, we're going to get in the crowd. He goes, no, 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 just sit here. And I said, what? 
And the second it occurred to me, of course, you take them down because you want to take them back up. We mm-hmm. couldn't take them any higher. So we sat there, just sat there. I mean, it was for minutes. The crowd just kind of started getting quieter. They booed for a second. Mm-hmm. Then they just kind of got restless. Then we started the match, and we ended up with them on their feet just like Taker had left them. But it was all because of storytelling. It was because of Eddie, mm-hmm. who had a perception of the crowd. And he was right. It was something I knew. I just panicked because I thought, what in the world are we going to do? But that's the art of storytelling. That's the art of taking people on a roller coaster. And you left them incredibly happy. If we tried to follow that fire with fire, it, didn't, it would have never worked. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's waves. If like, You see some of the greatest matches, and you, you have that, you know, the up, and then they bring you down. And then you're like, well, he's got to do something. He's got to come back here. And he's still not, and he's still not. And the guy's still putting the boots to him. And, just, and then all of a sudden there's that one look or that one move and then back up. And uh, I don't remember the last time I really saw, uh, you know, something that, that carried you. And, and back then you could carry the story along for months. You can't do that anymore because they got a pay-per-view the next week <laughs> that changes right. the whole yeah, story. You, you see a few guys that, that yeah. still, you know, get into that mindset. Cena's like that. Uh, Cena's awesome. Uh, yeah. Randy Orton's like that. You know, I don't know a lot of the new guys. I just watch what see what I see on television. And a lot of those are truncated matches, so you don't get to really feel, you know, what what would happen if they had 30 minutes or more, you know, which you don't always get in a pay-per-view either. But it's just a complete different mindset. You know, to go from a seven-minute match is real easy. You get out there, you shine the baby face, you go to heat, and then you, whatever the finish is, a 30-minute match is tough. And guys can't make that transition because now all of a sudden you've got to take people on a roller coaster. And you've got you to have several dips and ebbs and flows. And that's a lot harder to do. I, I worked with Undertaker several hundred times uh, during the mid-2000s. We never once would talk over a match in the back because he wanted to get out there and feel the crowd and see what they were buying today because you're in Detroit one day, you're in Pittsburgh the next. Sometimes the same match might work, but if it doesn't, you're screwed. Yeah. And crowds can be different. Crowds in the afternoon can be different from crowds at night. It's, it's crazy, you know, and you never know until you get out there. You know, you were uh, a three-time tag team champion, uh, a WWE champion. Um, what did those titles mean to you? I mean, I, I know that you can measure your career also by just where you are uh, and how you're received by uh, the audience, and you know that. But what did it, what did those titles mean to you? When I was younger, it didn't mean as much. Uh, fortunately, when I got the, the WWE championship, I was older, and I'd been around a while, and I'd already thought my career was over. I'd torn my bicep. I'd had two hernia surgeries. I thought my career was over, and all of a sudden, a uh, little luck happened again for me. Uh, Kurt Angle had gotten hurt. Brock had left the company. Big Show was out. They needed somebody to wrestle Eddie Guerrero in about six weeks at the Staples Center. And they just, it was just luck. And it got thrust upon me late in my career. And because of that, I think I appreciated it much more. Is there one in particular that you remember that uh, that really stands out that was, it, you know, the first one was where you stood in the ring and said, you know what, I, I've made it. I've, uh, I've, I've reached that, that point. Yeah, we were in uh, Portugal one time, and it was just a, it was a nothing match. And uh, I was the Wednesday champion. And I had a match, I think it was with Bob Holly or something. And I got out there, and I did the old chic stuff. And I said, I'm going to sing God Bless America. Now, don't, don't boo USA. I think this is a joke. The mm-hmm. place for 15 minutes sang their national anthem over and over and over. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. This is just awesome. 
it was so much fun. But yeah, there's there were some times when you sit there and think, man, this is really cool. Yeah. When when it when, when you it's all started to wind down, John, and uh, you made that transition to commentary. Uh, I'm sure you must have thought, I, yeah, I can do this. But was was uh, was it enough for you as to, to doing that, or did you miss being full time in the ring? Yeah, that's a great question because I uh, when I first got through playing football, I, I coached a year in college, yeah. and I was too close to the game. Uh, yeah. I still wanted to play. And I wasn't a good coach. I think now I'd be a much better coach. I, I don't know if I was as good a commentator. I don't know if I was ever a good commentator, but I, started, I don't think at the very beginning because I wanted to be in the ring still. Mm-hmm. I think now when I go back, it's just a matter of a guy looking at the at the sport, uh, the entertainment, whatever you want to call it, and just kind of calling what you see according to the storyline. I think now it's much easier. But at the time, it was so quick after I'd gotten done. And I, my career ended so quickly because of injuries. You know, just all of a sudden it was just over. And I kind of miss being in the ring. So it, the, my mindset wasn't what I needed to be for a commentator when I first started. Yeah. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier on in, in talking about, uh, you know, coming up in the old school. And, and you were known to be, you know, stiff with ribs. You would t- test the boys to see how uh, bad they wanted to be in this business. Is it something that uh, is missing from the business today? You know, the, the, the hours and hours in the car where you would uh, learn, you know, about the business. Or is it just it's it's moved on and it, it is where it is? I think it misses, definitely. You know, the, the business has changed. You know, our group could not read a script. These these guys, a lot of them, can't ad-lib because they never had to. Now, some of them probably can. Some of our guys probably could read a script. We just never yeah. – it was just not what we did. And so the business has changed. It doesn't make it necessarily better or worse, but I think the, these guys not having the advantage of, of the, those long car rides and the camaraderie that we had of talking over the business because we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. We had no entertainment except for each other. Mm-hmm. And so you had to talk about stuff of the day. You know, you only could read so much out of the USA Today, which is about the only national paper at that time. And so he, he talked about the business all the time. And I think that's missing. So we talk about old school, John. And back when I worked with the WWF at the time in the uh, mid 80s, early 90s, you know, when there was a dispute, the boys settled it in the locker room. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's the way it was. Management was never brought in. I mean, I think today they have like a kangaroo court. Uh, Is that element missing? Does that did that take an an edge away from the business or? Uh, is it just the corporate world now, and maybe is this a better way? I don't know. What do you think? You know, I, that's a great question because it may just be the corporate world. You know, we had wrestlers court, and it was it was so much fun. You know, guys yeah. would have a dispute, and we had too much time on our hands. You know, these guys yeah. have all the distractions in the world. You know, we didn't have anything but the business. We, you know, business was, you know, you didn't have a million cable channels. You didn't have cell phones. Just had the business and things festered because we we're on the road so much, you know. And we, when I first started, we did TV just once a month. We did four Rawls, we did four Superstars, one pay per view, and that was it. Then be on the road for twenty something days, sometimes straight. So things would fester over time. So you had to have a way to get rid of that problem, you know, without it coming to a fight or something, which is what no one wanted. Uh, you know, that happened a few times, but yeah. that's not what you wanted. Mm-hmm. So we would have, and I think. We'll answer both you, both parts of your question. I think it's missing today, and I'm not sure it could ever be done again. In this corporate yeah. world where you just can't 
you can't do anything. And, and maybe it doesn't even have a place anymore because, you know, these guys don't have as much contact with each other. So it's kind of like uh, Billy and Dusty of ZZ Top. You know, they haven't spoken in years, but it doesn't really matter because they just show up and play music together. Yeah. That may be part of what it is. We had to live together, basically. Yeah. And so we had to solve problems. You know, we always had wrestler's court, which a lot of people had talked about. It was just, a, it was a fun event. We would look forward, we looked forward to wrestler's court. I was always the, the prosecutor. Undertaker was the judge. We called him the hanging judge because he was always hung over. And uh, we had Charles Wright, Godfather, and Kane were the bailiffs. But we would take guys to court, sometimes over tongue-in-cheek stuff, sometimes over serious stuff. But it was designed to be entertaining. You know, we, we would, I remember Ted Long one time, uh, had uh, May uh, <laughs> Mula's uh, friend as his uh, defense attorney. Mm-hmm. It was just fun. People look forward to it. Then you get together, you kind of air out your grievances, and you try to be entertaining. The main thing to do was entertain the boys at wrestlers court. And then at the end of it, Undertaker would always come along with some type of you know punishment, whatever it was. Usually it was a case of beer and some chicken and <laughs> take the boys out for a party or something. It was always something the guys would enjoy doing together and you got rid of a lot a lot of these differences it was a good thing it was never a malicious thing where you know you get in there and you try to you know uh, try to harm somebody or tear somebody down it was kind of tongue-in-cheek ribbon on the square mm-hmm. and you would get in there and you try to be entertaining you try to have fun and at the end of it you know if somebody was screwing up the boys would be able to say you know you don't need to be doing that anymore we never had a problem coming out of wrestlers court because they always got solved in it. And mm-hmm. people always left wrestlers court feeling good about themselves, about whatever the problem was. And I'm not sure you can do that today in this corporate world. And I'm well, not sure it's needed because yeah. of the, the fact that these guys aren't together like we were. Yeah, but is, was there, and, and for bad or worse, it wasn't, you know, it was all fun and roses and rainbows. But at the same time, you said living together as a family. Uh, did that help the product, though? Because... Um, being in that situation, and I remember the competition was unbelievable. And like you said, you you were around these guys, so you knew them, and uh, you came up with scenarios. And a lot of it might be a a bit of uh, real life uh, mixed into it, as opposed to you know these guys showing up uh, and performing together every other week or something. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, we're not an opportunity or. Uh some other great actor, you know, we're, we're guys who are playing off characters that are better when they're based upon ourselves. So mm-hmm. it's something that we can relate to and living together like that. You see what these guys are. And sometimes you see stuff in them that they don't see themselves and, and guys all the time were saying, Hey, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And it became of the fact that we were just around each other so much, you know, that's just, I'm not sure it's even possible in, in today's age, but it certainly helped. And we had that huge competition, you know, before it was the territories, then it was mm-hmm. with WCW. It was really us versus them. Yeah. You know, we never had a problem personally with Eric Bischoff or, or any of the boys over there, the NWO. They were all our friends, but we wanted to beat them. Yeah. And it was a serious battle. And it was really us versus them. And that came about because I think because we were so close. Yeah. And everybody stepped up their game because, like you said, it was a competition. It was it was business. It was putting food on your table, right? Because if we didn't if we didn't win, we didn't eat. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't right. know what would happen. We didn't know if if they won and put us out of business that we would have jobs. We had no idea about that. We were literally fighting for our survival, and I think they thought they probably were too. 
So yeah. it was a really heck of a, it was a good battle. And it was the same back in the territory days. You know, you, you had battles with other territories who were always trying to encroach on your talent, encroach on your business. And it was really an us versus them. And, you, you know, we're fighting for your own survival. We didn't have, yeah. we didn't have safety nets. You know, we didn't have pensions. We didn't, we didn't have yeah. a, a, a big nest egg that we could simply rely on. We were, we were hand to mouth. And so it was a matter of survival. Yeah, I mean, really independent contractors. You guys were uh, businesses of your own. And and looking back now, John, on that career, and I don't know if you feel that you know your timing was perfect to be in the business. It certainly has brought you a lot of fortune, and I don't mean just financially. Uh, as you look back, uh, what is your view of, of your career and what professional wrestling has brought to your life? Well, it's gave me everything. You know, I've gotten to travel the world. I'm a kid from a small town in West Texas, and I've got to travel the world. I've got to live all over the world. I've been over 70 different countries, all seven continents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been just a wonderful ride, and all of that is because of professional wrestling, 100%. You know, the, the job I have now on Fox uh, is because of that. The, the businesses I'm doing on the side are because of that. So it, it was a wonderful ride. I, you know, I wish... Uh, you know, you always have looked back and said, I wish I could have done a few things different. I, I wish I could have been healthy longer. Because you know, when I when I first made it, uh, you know, I was at the my peak earning years, and that's when I got hurt. My body just gave out on me. I wish I could have had another four or five years, but everybody says that. So yeah. I'm not nothing new. I mean, Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time, and he wished he could have four or five more years. So that's nothing new. I, but so looking back, it's I look back with nothing but pleasure. I wish I could do it all over again. It was so much fun. You know, and uh, as I mentioned at the top of the program, uh, besides all the other things you're doing, but you have committed a big part of your life now to trying to help kids, impoverished kids and uh, on the island of Bermuda. But I know you're you're expanding this. And we share a love here of uh, the game of rugby. I uh, was, was uh, fortunate to play at the University of Arizona when I was going to school and just fell in love with the sport. I know you have since. I know you discovered it later in life. But it really is. And I remember... I mean, it changed my life completely. I, I, I was able to travel to uh, other parts of the world that I'd never gotten the chance to do. Um, but you see also how it, uh, it brings people together. And talk a little bit about your, your organization, the foundation you have Beyond Rugby Bermuda, and, and, uh, and what, how you got involved and, and what it's doing for kids there. Yeah, I was living here in Bermuda, and I was seeing a lot of the gang issues that, that go on here uh, with the murder rate and with drugs and, and the violence and kids mm-hmm. dropping out of school. Like almost any inner city, we're a small island, so there's not technically an inner city, but same type of kids, at-risk kids. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something to help. And I met a guy down in South Africa when I went to the 2010 Soccer World Cup, and Nick Keller, who ran Beyond Sport. And I started talking to him about it. He said, man, you should set up a, a program that uses sport to help kids. And I said, uh, you know, I, I always want to be a coach. That would be perfect for me. And American football, you need 22 players. You need equipment. Right, you need a ball. And that's yeah. it. It's yeah. like soccer. It's a, it's a beautiful game. And you can play five on five, 15 on 15. And for inner city kids, especially, rugby is perfect. It gets out yeah. a lot of their aggression. They get to hit each other. And rugby is a sport with incredible ethos of respect. You know, guys always help each other out. They shake hands afterwards. Yeah. And you fight like the Dickens out there. And afterwards, you, you sit down and have a meal together. It's, it's part of the game. It's a wonderful game. I think America is really going to embrace uh, rugby. Our U.S. men's Eagles team 15 had an incredible year last year. Our seven teams ranked number one in the world right now. I mean, I think America would 
will love a sport like rugby. It's actually a lot safer than football. So I, I still love football. Um, would love it like crazy. I'm going to be watching it uh, all throughout the playoffs and the college football bowls. But it's a sport I think Americans uh, will embrace. It's also a lot safer than because of no helmet. You don't have a different way to tackle people. Right. But to bring this to kids, to give them something to look forward to, we've had a great success here in Bermuda of keeping kids out of gangs, keeping kids out of jail, and keeping them in school. We, we won an award a few years ago out of 17 countries and about 7,000 programs for being the best we're working with at-risk kids is because we put together a program of really good volunteers and it's really an island-wide initiative to work with these kids. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, I, and I think I mentioned to you before my, my nephew, Ryan Mattias is uh, a U.S. Eagle. He's uh, with the 15 side right now. And uh, it, it's, it's really great to see how America is beginning to embrace rugby on a bigger stage. And I, and I always wanted to see it happen, but, uh, you know, people think of, you know, kids in Bermuda and everybody's like, well, God, it's this wonderful tourist place. Well, everywhere you go, there are, there's poverty. And I know you're also trying to expand this program. How's that going, uh, in the United States? Because I, I totally agree with you. I think that there's no better game, uh, to help kids out and, uh, you know, and, and that it embraces more of this camaraderie than rugby. Yeah, there's some terrific programs. There's a program down in Memphis right now, uh, Memphis Center City Rugby, that's run by mm-hmm. Shane Young. He's just a wonderful young guy, and they're doing incredible things down there, working with some of the worst poverty in the country using rugby. There's groups all over New York. Mark Griffin has found Play Rugby USA that just does incredible work uh, in, in Harlem and, and all of the boroughs of, of uh, New York City. have about 5,000 kids in the program. They're taking some school graduation rates from the teens to the 80% ratios. It just does incredible. I was just in India uh, within the last six months visiting rugby programs in Mumbai in the slums. And same story. It's just, yeah. you know, the people out there are doing incredible work. And people are doing incredible work in spite of the governments. You know, people say, how much government assistance do you get? We get zero. And yeah. I don't want anything. You know, governments are, you know, they're inherently self-serving. Some are corrupt. But uh, you don't want to deal with these guys. You know, you want to, deal with private enterprise that's funding things for the right reasons. So how can people, if they wanted to contribute, uh, help out the program? We don't have a website for, for that. I, we, mm-hmm. I took it down because it was so out of date. We have a Facebook right. page. I would rather somebody just go and find a local sports program and support it. Uh, you know, there's Beat the Streets in New York City. Uh, Mike Novogratz, a billionaire, funds a lot of that program himself. There's it's Beat the Streets in Philadelphia. I would go on Beyond Sport website, and I would reach. I would try to find out any sports programs in your area, because yeah. uh, sports for change are, are doing wonderful work all over the world. There's about 2,500 programs at least on the, the, the Beyond Sport all over the globe that are doing incredible work. Uh, they actually, Spirit of Soccer was actually crippling ISIS ability to recruit because they were putting soccer facilities in refugee camps in Syria and Iraq. I mean, there's, some, there's some stuff happening out there that is just, some of these guys should get a Nobel Prize. It's, it's so good. It's really heartwarming to see. Yeah. And I tell you, sport is, no matter, no matter what it is, is, is really a powerful uh, driving force for kids, and I, we need to see more of it. Sean, I do want to mention one thing before we go. Uh, oh, sure. I've got a business venture that that uh, that I'm going to debut. Uh, hopefully, well, not hopefully. I'm going to debut in the next few months. It'll be something with uh, Bruce Pritchard and Conrad. It's not a wrestling podcast, uh, uh-huh. and uh, some uh, 
I don't want to give anything more away. We're, we're going to debut something. I think that's going to be pretty cool. You know about it, but it's uh, we're doing something I think really cool that we're going to debut. It. So kind of watch this space. We're, we're, we've been working on this for about a year. We're pretty excited about it. Oh man, I yeah, I I, I was uh, I was kind of afraid to touch that, but you know, I'm glad you mentioned it. It gives everybody an idea to uh, to watch out for it. Okay, so uh, you yeah, ready I don't for want to a give quick anything more away because I don't want to you know. I don't want to tip the hat before it's done. I can mention yeah. Bruce and Conrad. They're my dear friends. Bruce has been one of my best friends for a long time. So we're doing something together, and uh, hopefully it's a, it's going to be something uh, really big. People will have a lot of fun with it. Oh, man. I can't wait till the uh, details are out. John, thank you so much for joining us here on Primetime, and I can't wait to see you again. Sean, it is a true honor. You're a good friend, and I love uh, being on your show. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation with JBL. Uh, he is truly a renaissance man. Uh, you look at all these things that this guy has done. Um, you know, besides uh, you know being a, a, a football player, uh, did play professional ball. Uh, also, then became a professional wrestler along the way. Became a financial expert. Uh, you know, and and uh, all the while doing this uh, in, in professional wrestling and the in the accomplishments that he had in, in the WWE. And now the guy's on the Fox uh, Business Network, and he's interviewing Lyndon McMahon. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's amazing. And then he has this new organization that help ki- that helps kids out. And you know, I love rugby, so uh, to me, it's all, it's all great. And uh, I really enjoyed having JBL on. And uh, he has not done yet. And uh, once again, I want to remind all you guys, if uh, our Patreon uh, listeners, that uh, we're going to have a special. A Q&A, a little extra random questions that we had for uh, John Layfield, and you can hear them uh, right on Patreon. That'll be coming up, uh, posted there very soon. So it, we'd love to have you come on board with Patreon. I'm not going to go through all the details again. I went long enough at the top of this, but uh, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney and uh, either become a prime timer or a Mooney. Lots of great stuff coming up. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor once again, Blue Chew. Uh, before we go, uh, bluechew.com. And folks, uh, once again, now could not be a better time to get your first order, guys, because uh, you listen to this podcast. We've got that special deal for you. Visit bluechew.com right now, and you're going to get your first shipment absolutely free when you use our special promo code PRIMETIME, P-R-I-M-E-T-I-M-E, and all you have to do is just pay $5 for shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, BlueChew.com, promo code PRIMETIME to try it all for free. So come on, guys, man up. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. That's BlueChew.com. Also, check out MooneyTees.com. We've got uh, a new design up there, the Mooney's T-shirt with those uh, boxers that uh, I wore for that episode with Edge and Christian. And we've got a lot more of those uh, great styles coming up. So check out MooneyTees.com. And next week, we've got a great guest coming up. Uh, We're going to welcome Pete Gass. Uh, You remember him from the Mean Street Posse, you know, from the mean streets of Greenwich. Uh, You're going to really like this conversation. Um, I met Pete, when I was back filming the first episode I did with Edge and Christian, he's really a great guy. And uh, you're going to like this this podcast. We, we really get into uh, talking about what it was like to grow up around the McMahon family. 
Nobody really talked to him about that and what uh, Shane McMahon was like when he was in high school. And really, he had some great stories uh, about how, uh, well, Vince could be a bit of a disciplinarian. <laughs> I will leave it at that. Pete Gass is our, our guest next week. I love that conversation, and you will too. All right, that's going to do it for this week. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. <laughs>